Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. We're going to continue now. This is, the th- I think, the third part in our discussion on humility as a key disposition to access greater grace. And I handed you the note. If you want a spare note, for those of you who want to quickly grab it, it's at the desk. If one of the young men can just get it. Anyone that needs a note, pick your hand up and um, we'll make that available to you. I'm going to jump right into what I, I believe would be the basis for, for our study today. And without having to rehearse some of the things that we have already discussed, I was pleased to receive such good reports from the house church leaders um, in the week. This week we had house church meetings where aspects of humility was discussed. And I think God is really doing a work. Can you feel God is doing a work within all our lives? God is extracting every trace of pride out of us and forging a humble disposition within us to which He can be attracted. As a helicopter looks for a helipad, heavenly grace looks for your humility pad, a heart upon which it can land. Right? And the depth of the humility, the sincerity of it, will determine the quantum and the quality of grace that God will dispense to us. I want to start on page 12 of your note, if you have it. Page 12. You follow with me, it'll go far, far quicker. There's plenty of notes. If you need a note, please, it'll make far more wise sense to have a copy so you can really plug in and follow methodically with us. So, 1 Peter 5.5 5, uh, which is quoted on the previous page, 11, if you just want to read it. First Peter 5.5 5 says, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now, if you turn over to page 12, that verse says, it talks about subjection. The issues of subjection and submission are expressions of humility. That I will talk to in three weeks' time. I've got a whole thing prepared already on the disposition on what it is to submit to another. Okay? And that, that is critical. And we will we'll address that. So be subject, the younger be subject to the older. And then it says, all of us, we must clothe all of you. Everyone say all of you. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Uh, last week we said that humility toward each other is built upon a true estimation and assessment of who you are. So I cannot be humble toward another when I don't fully appreciate and estimate myself correctly internally. I can't do that internally within myself unless toward God I have a proper relationship and proper perspective in my relationship to Him. So if I don't have any humility towards God, let's say 
I am proud towards the things of God or I take God's word. And I think nothing of his principles. I can, as the scripture says, take his word and cast it behind my back. If I'm not humble towards God, I will not fully have a proper estimation and think of myself with sober judgment internally. If I fail to do that, then in reference to others relationally, uh, I will never express humility towards another because two things are not intact. First, my humility towards God and then the proper view of myself in a humble disposition within. I don't have that. If I don't have those two components, there's no hope that I would ever be humble relationally toward another. Okay? So humility is built upon those two prerequisites. But it is interesting to me here, the words be clothed with. And I emailed this to you in the week. James saw, I flooded Facebook the past two weeks with quotes on humility. Literally three per day for the past, I think, ten days. Thirty sort of quotes. And James saw it. And James sent me a text saying, oh, Randy, he calls me Randy. Randy, remember, um, do you have the book that I wrote on humility? So I said, you gave me, James gave me a whole lot of his books on my last visit to Kenya. So I said, I have a bookshelf of books, 90% of which I don't even know what's there, and 90, 95% of which I haven't read. It's just good for show. It makes an office look like a nice office. I said, I must take the time. So I said, let me search. So I went to the books, and I found it. And um, so I browsed through it. It was so enriching, encouraging, and I emailed this to you. I will encourage you to read this. It's a short reading. But it's a very practical, very practical writing. And James, if you know him, great man of God, but oozes humility, his whole disposition. I think he aptly titled the book, The Garment of Humility. This says, clothe yourself with, clothe yourself with humility. Okay? Clothe yourself with humility. Um, it's something you wear as a mantle of authority. Please listen carefully. Clothing or mantles were placed on people in Scripture to indicate function or levels of anointing or levels of authority. Okay? So Aaron the high priest had a turban on his head and he had elaborate garb that literally covered him from head to, to toe. Very little of his skin was seen. So God clothed over his flesh or his humanity with an authority, high priestly garbs, because he had to do high priestly function. So clothing in the Bible is always indicative of a mantle of anointing or authority for function. When the Bible says, clothe yourself with humility, that speaks to me this, that humility is my authority in the spirit. In the realm of spirit, what empowers me to function is how I'm dressed. Is how I'm dressed. You've got to be dressed correctly for certain functionality. Right? No God will use nobody that is not clothed with humility. Right? If you think you are it right? and think that you've arrived, you've just disqualified yourself for service. If you hold to the opinion in your mind, please remember, let me remind you how humility starts. Isaiah 66 says that Although God dwells in the highest of the heavens, where is the house that you can build for me, declares the Lord. But he said, to this man will I look. Who attracts God's look? He says, to this man will I look. 
he who is humble and lowly in heart and who trembles at my word. Come on, say it to me. Trembles at my word. So God says, I will look to the man that is lowly and humble and who has a reverential respect for my view of things. My word is my view of things. God's word is his take on things. God's word is his principle. Right? So James 1.21, it says, receive the word of God. How? With humility. How must you receive the word with? It says, receive the word with humility. The word is able to save your soul. The word is able to save your soul. Dependent on how it's received. If you receive it, you can't. See, pride, God's view or God's way is presented to you, but your pride will stand in opposition, in antagonism to God's expectation or that is laying on you. And you'll always stand in insurrection, upright, before a pressing expectation of God upon you, and you will insist upon your way. But the Greek term humility is protes, which literally means divesting yourself of your opinion. Take your opinion and make it subservient, make it bow to the view of God on the matter. Okay? So it's very important. Okay? So when I say clothe yourself with humility, you are saying I'm going to clothe my spirit and my mind with this disposition. If ever I have a view of a thing, a, a worldview, a take, an understanding, a thought on a person, circumstance, or matter, and God presents His view of the same to me, but His view contradicts mine, I will gladly submit mine, bow, in humility, I will defer to Him. That is how I reverence Him. You can say I reverence God all you want to, but if ever God presents His view of things and you stand by your opinion, you've just demonstrated your lack of humility and your lack of fearing Him and His Word. Okay? Very easy to say I fear God. Yeah, it was easy to say that, but if I present to you a command of God to which opposes your stand on things and your incalcitrant, you're unbending and stubborn. You say, no, my way or no way. Remember last week I told you the favorite song in hell will be, I did it my way. Right? Do it your way. It will land you so far removed from the purposes of God. Okay? So we must bow our way to the way of God. That for me is the ultimate expression of humility. I will talk more to this next week. Please, you mustn't miss next week. Next week I'll do four or five case studies. Of how obedience is the litmus test of a humble heart. Right? He became, we're going to read it just now. Philippians 2 says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's no, there's no claim to obedience, there's no claim to humility without demonstrable obedience. Right? So, how, how, how humble do you think you are? Ask your neighbor, how humble do you think you are? Okay, if the person asks, very humble, they just manifested their pride. <laughs> okay. right? It's easy to test it. Simple test would be, to what degree is your life compliant obediently with all the dictates of God's word? That is how humble you are. Now, First Peter says he opposes the proud, but he gives what to the humble man? Everyone say grace. Say, grace comes to the disposition of 
humility. If I want this thing called grace that we've been teaching so thoroughly on the past few months now, if I want this grace dynamic in my life, I must ensure no pride exists. No pride exists. Really, the way I foresee the next few weeks in this congregation, everyone will be in repentance mode, including myself. I've been repenting left, right, and center. Right? In a few weeks' time, I'll start talking about pride. We haven't got there yet. Make sure you're humble before we start talking about pride. Right? Because when we start, I'm telling you, I thought I was humble. That just manifested my pride. Not right there, not so. I thought I had a degree of humility. But when I studied the scriptures, I'm now on 33 expressions of pride in my notes. 33 ways in which you demonstrate your lack of humility. Right? So please, don't leave the church now. <laughs> Come back. God's going to tweak you. You know why? What are we after? Everyone say grace. If grace is this, this if it, the helicopter of grace is going to land on the humility pad, I must make sure this humility pad is properly constructed. Otherwise, any trace of pride is going to repel grace. God will oppose me if I'm proud, but he will give grace to me if I am humble of heart. Amen. So the word be clothed with is ekkombomai. Ekkombomai. Right? It's a hectic word, right? It's derived from the word Greek kombu, uh, and it means to gather or to tie in a knot. Hence a garment, to clothe, to clothe or girdle oneself, right? So an ekkombama is a long white apron or outer garment with strings worn by slaves. So when Peter's saying clothe yourself with humility, the garment in the Greek he's referencing was an outer garment that had strings on. So whatever clothing the slave had on, he would wear this outer covering garment and tie himself up, fasten himself to indicate his disposition to serve. To indicate, I'm going to lower my, no matter what garments I have, I cover them over with the garment of humility. So what he's seen on me is a humble disposition. I want to encourage you to start. And you know what? The Bible, the, the, the word is to fasten. Everyone say fasten. The word, when he says clothe, he says clothe and tie it tight. Right? Buckle up with humility in other words. Right? Fasten this garment tightly upon your being. Okay? And I want to encourage you to not let it be um, fleeting. You have it one day and it's not there the other day. This is one garment you don't take off. Okay? It mustn't be um, momentary. It must be an abiding disposition of your life. This is what I really want to challenge you with this. You don't move in and out of the states of humility. It's simply who you are, period. In fact, if you master it, you will not have to work at it. And I will show you in a moment exactly how we do this. Okay, in a moment how we do this. Now, let's go on to page 12. There's many other scriptures we could look at, but you can do that privately on your own. Some practical aspects. Humility in behavior and good deeds is wisdom. Watch, humility in my behavior and my good deeds, that's wisdom. 
what is wisdom? Whenever I, how I behave, and especially the good I do, if the good I do is done with the disposition of humility, Bible equates that to wisdom. James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show how. By his good behavior, his good deeds in what? In gentleness and wisdom. Now the word gentleness here is the same word protest in the Greek translated as humility. You will see this in how the Amplified Bible frames it. James 3.13 in the Amplified says, Who is there among you who is wise and intelligent? Then let him, by his noble living, show forth his good works and the unobtrusive humility, which is the proper attitude of true wisdom. Okay? Everyone say good deeds. Now, good deeds don't earn salvation, but once we are saved, the Bible says we are ordained unto good works. So we do good works not to earn salvation. We do good works as expressions of our salvation, of the fact that we are saved. So we will do good to all men. Not so? The Bible says do good to all men. And Titus says be humble toward all men. Okay? And I want to encourage you, practice just being kind. Just be a nice person. Practice this. Someone is in need. Just don't walk past and do nothing. If it's within your power to help, help. Stop and inconvenience yourself, your schedule, your finances to convenience another. Whenever you can inconvenience yourself to convenience another, you demonstrate grace because grace knows how to give. You know the grace, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus, how that although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus. He did that. He was rich, became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul says, you know that grace. So grace's presence always knows how to enrich another by impoverishing itself. How to convenience another by inconveniencing itself. Grace and humility go together. They're bedfellows. One is attracted to the other. The one is the house of the other. Grace lives in humility. And humility, when it sees someone in need, doesn't walk by unaffected. Will do something about the matter. Last week I challenged you. I hope you did it. Remember? I said associate with the lowly. That's what the Bible says. Right? Associate with people which most, most deem unimportant. For by doing so, you demonstrate the importance to them. Okay? Now, your challenge this week is do a good deed, but do so in humility. How can you attend humility with your good deed? The one thing that you can do is simply not bring attention to it. You know, when we go, do good, we want to broadcast it on Facebook, on Twitter, and Google, <laughs> some Google app. When you do good, you maintain your humility in the good deeds you do by keeping quiet about the matter. Right? You will only reference it if you have to as a point of explanation or teaching or example to another. But you will never reference it 
to gain brownie points in the minds of people or with God and see what good I've done today. So tell you never do your good, but do it quietly. Best audience you can have with humility is God. Nobody need know anything. But if heaven is aware of it, there's a grace component that heaven will deposit to you. Amen? In fact, if you do your good things you, before men to be seen of them, Jesus warns you are pharisaical. That's the Pharisees do that. And the Bible says they have their reward. What's the reward? The reward of men. It says they do deeds to be seen of men. And Jesus, they have that reward. The reward you seek, you have. But we're seeking a heavenly reward. Amen? So do your deeds before men. Then, this is very important to me next, because I've seen it too often in apostolic circles. Next point. Humility in how we contend for the faith. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it how? Do it with gentleness and with respect. Do it with gentleness and with respect. Again, the word gentleness is protest, which can be translated humility. Does it say contend for the faith? Yes? Yes, we must contend. So if someone is in error, just watch. And you who claim to have the truth, defend the truth. And an argument, let's say, ensues. How you defend the truth, this scripture says, you must do so with gentleness, which is humility, and showing respect for the person you're talking to. Okay? This is very important to me. Because you know what I've seen, particularly in apostolic circles, is an arrogance associated with revelation. Because you know more, doesn't place you above others, which in your eyes are at a lesser place of revelation than you. Right? There's a subtle pride that can come in with knowledge. Because the Bible says, here's the text there in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Right? Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The ESV says it nicely at the bottom of your page there. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay? Love builds up. So if I'm contending with someone for, and I know, let's say it's a fact that they're in error, and I'm in accuracy, and I'm contending for a position doctrinally, and they are, are, are contending my position. How I do that, listen carefully. You contend for truth motivated by love. Your love in your contention for the truth will configure how you contend for the truth. But if you simply argue, absent concern for the person to which you are speaking or arguing, you will very easily become callous, disesteem the person, be disrespectful to the person that they are. So I want to encourage you. I see it all too often on Facebook. And some of you know my testimony, because on Facebook at occasion, I've had occasion where people will challenge a view that I put. And you would notice how I always, always open the discussion. Even if they are cold and blunt in how they, I would say, hi, so and so. How are you? Trust all is well with you in every respect. Concerning the matter you've raised, then I'll give my view. You can go backwards and forwards. 
but you never ever just bluntly argue for truth without demonstrating your heart of love and concern for them as persons. Sometimes a person will never be won by your intellectualism and your reasoning. They'll be won more by your disposition of love in how you present the truth. Love always wins at the end of the day. I've discovered this long ago. We can argue until the cows come home about certain issues. But if, if I argue built upon the premise of love, love wins the heart. Not arguments. Amen? But you know, if you are proud, and you have a humble spirit, hey, <laughs> I've seen some guys, right? You destroy more the person in your manner than by your content. Content of truth can be offensive alone on its own. But don't add to the offense in the manner in which you contend for the truth. Right? So you always be humble. Right? You always be um, lowly and, and, and have a soft tone in how you speak, even how you write, how you text. Amen. So tell your neighbor, contend humbly. Contend humbly. Okay? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13.2 If I know all mysteries and knowledge but do not have love, I am? I am nothing. Now, this is where I really want to get into. This is now the start of this, this whole series for me on humility. On page 14, listen to this quickly. I'm going to explain this. James 4 says, But he gives a greater grace. Come on, say that we But he gives a greater grace. Now watch what the text says. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The word greater in the Greek is in this context, megas. It means large, numerous, abundant, used of intensity and its degrees. Everyone say intensity. Say degrees. Right? Splendid, prepared on a grand scale, stately. Love this. The word megas, note there, megas is a comparative of maison, which means greater, more, or older. The King James in this text says, but he gives more grace. But it doesn't convey the essence of what the world is trying to, 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 to communicate. Where the Bible says he gives a greater grace or more grace, it doesn't just mean more as in quantity. It means more as in degree or in intensity. It speaks more to quality than quantity. God says, I will not just give you more grace. I'll give you such a profound quality, intensity of the grace because of your humble disposition. Now, everyone say, that is what we're after. Uh, that is, I don't just want more. I want such a, you see, within grace, there are calibers. There are certain pedigrees, if you would, uh, 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 qualities, expressions of the profound grace of God that He gives in specific measure and character or nature to people. But He will not just dispense His most treasured expressions of His grace to arrogant, proud people. It's when you humble yourself, God says, I will give you megas grace, maison grace. I'll give you grace of greater intensity, grace of a greater degree. Speak to the force or to the power of a thing. Like in Mark 4, where it says, great fear was on them. Not just fear as in more. It speaks to the whole 
force and intensity locked up in the thing. So when God says greater grace, means if you have this, there's, 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 a, there's, there's, there's a certain quality of godness. Because grace is the substance of God. There's a certain caliber of the godness that will start to reside in you, make you who you are, and push all the purposes of God to another level. I'm experiencing this right now as we speak. Greater grace. Who wants greater? Please, not just more. Give me more, more, more. You're saying, I want those, the absolute treasured aspects, the most profound expressions of all that you represent as God. The most purest, sincerest, authentic dimensions of God want that in me. But God only says, watch, I only give that to humble people. That does not come to the proud. I wish we could get into pride right now, but God instructed me later. Just lay certain foundations. If any expression of pride is in you, I want to encourage you, brethren, deal with it quickly. Because there's a quantum and quality of grace available for you to access. Remember, I want to remind you, what does grace do? Makes me who I am, empowers what God has called me to do. If you don't have this, your development into sonship is stunted, and you, you will not have the resident empowerment, energy, uh, enablement from God to do what God has called you to do. Now tell you that, but you need this greater grace. We all do. And I'm saying, God, if my pride is going to prevent this, then deal with me. And God is dealing big time. Like I'm, I'm not joking when I'm saying I'm repenting left, right, and center. Right? God has been highlighting certain things. I'm making adjustments to certain things so that we don't um, give a false semblance of the fact that we are a proud people. Amen? Just, just work on lowering yourself. Tapenos, the Greek for humble, means low. Go down. Go down. And I wrote in, your, in the WhatsApp group on the church group yesterday, I sent this to you. I said, the more you bend... You create space for grace. But if, if there's too much you in you, that Christ in you has got no room to full grace in you. Because you occupy all the space in you. And there's no room for grace to fall. Right? So tell your neighbor, how low can you go? Right? How low? So what degree is God saying to you? Bend and submit. You have an opinion on the matter, but defer to my way and see what I will fill your life with grace in. Okay. Now, I need you to concentrate extremely closely now. I'm going to explain why grace is so attracted to humility. Okay. So don't follow your notes. Just listen rather. You can read the note when you get home. Okay. This for me is very, very important. God is a humble God. Listen carefully. God is extremely humble as God. Let the thought sink. I'm saying it. It's plain. It's elementary to say God is humble. Not so. But it must be a revelation to you that God himself was pre-existently humble. He, in other words, eternally humility was a core facet in his being from before there was even a creation, before I think even there was the thought of producing a man and 
the whole creative order called the heavens and the earth and the galaxies, putting a man. If you think about God in pre-time, pre-existence, in eternity past, if you would, way back, and you examine this God full of grace, what you're going to find in God, in, in, in deity, is an eternal humility. There is an abiding, enduring, persistent, pre-existent humility within deity. And I'll demonstrate this to you, how this works. And from the scriptures also. Is God spirit? Yes? All of God is? All of God is spirit. Um, I got the following thoughts from one statement that Sam said. Samson at ALS said this. He said, if anyone commits or entrusts the representation of himself to another, that being is the most humblest of beings. Think. Everyone say think. This is, might be, sounds deep, but it's really not. Just think about it. If I entrust another to, to, to have the sole responsibility of representing me, and I go into invisibility, and I entrust to that one the task of accurately showing me forth to all of creation, Sam said this, then that being is the most humblest of beings. He said the, the, the greatest expression of humility is when anyone can commit to another the responsibility of representing them in their total absence. Right? So, let's say, let me use Joash and I. I let's say I can't go to a meeting. And I say to Joash, it's a key life-defining thing the meeting for me. Can't be there. I can if I want to. I can. I can be there. But I entrust you to go on my behalf and represent me accurately. You will think. You will speak. You will decide as I would decide. You represent me physically in that domain. That would be an expression of humility on my part. I can do it if I wanted to myself. But I choose to step back and I say, you represent me on my behalf. Think about what God did. God is invisible. He's spirit. He said this to his mind. Let us, three of them, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image and likeness. We will remain in a realm called invisible, but we will visibilize ourselves in a construct called man. We will actually take us as spirits the thing that defines us, we are spirit. We'll take a portion of that. We'll put spirit into the man of flesh. So we will, listen carefully, we divest. There's a divestiture out from us and an investiture into the man. So we divest ourselves to invest in the man. That spirit of which we are comprised as grace would now reside in, in that man. Can God do anything? Yes or no? Can God do anything? Do you think if he had the option of showcasing his glory to a created realm, he could have? But what did he do? He'll say, we'll stand back. Watch. We'll stand back and we'll leave it up to the human, which we will call son. Son of God. Adam was the son of God. We will leave it up to him. The responsibility of accurately depicting us to all of creation. 
I want to suggest to us, brethren, that is humility on God's part. As God as he is, he says, no, we will commit that responsibility to a human. Is God full of grace? Yes or no? What part of him is full of grace? His spirit component. Substance of spirit is grace. He takes that spirit, part of himself, and he puts it in men. So what do we have? We have grace within us. right? So listen carefully. Things of the spirit, particularly spirit as grace, knows how to divest of itself and to give to another. God did that when he made man. Now he puts spirit in man. Now he expects the same spirit that governed him in the creation of man to now govern all of man's behavior in the creative realm. He expects man as spirit to have the capacity to also divest of himself and give to another and commit in servanthood to another so as to represent God fully. What gives? Grace gives. Ask him, but what gives? <laughs> you know the phrase, what gives? Grace gives. If I'll, I'll prove this to you later. I won't have time for that now. But watch. Grace in God knows how to give of itself. And to, in essence, seemingly from a carnal perspective, lower itself, impoverish itself, to give responsibility to a man to represent him in the earth. But he has the deal. Things from the Spirit, when given from the Spirit, are not lessened by the quantum it's given. So if I give 10 rand from 100 rand, how much I have left? 90 rand. That, that's in natural economic terms. But that's in the natural order of the world. But if you go to the Spirit realm, when God, who is Spirit, gave of Spirit to men, He wasn't impoverished by the amount of spirit he gave to men because the realm of spirit does not know diminishment. So there's no problem for God to divest himself, to invest in man because from that realm, that realm is not like the earth. That realm does not know what it is to be impoverished by what it gave. That is why when I give finances now, tithes, first fruits, offering, I don't count the cost. If I think as a natural man... Based upon the earth, I count the cost. But if I'm giving as a spirit man, I know that like the two fish and the five loaves, if the boy gave it, it will exponentialize once it touches the realm of spirit. That is why grace gives. Ask anybody what gives. Tell them grace gives. Right? Grace gives. Right? We were blessed with a, a, a Zambian honorarium. Humble heart. Fears God and His Word. It knows how to release. Right? Release. So we released the Zambian first, the Zambian honorarium as a first fruit offering, because this was my first time to the nation. The first receipt of blessing from Zambia. So that goes directly. And there was no no sweat. No giving grudgingly. No, we right? I can't come out. I can't press the button for the EFT. I can't. No, we sometimes give grudgingly or we give because we are forced to. But if you're giving, your giving must be free. It must be generous. It must be willing. It must be loving. Because you're not giving as a man. You're giving as a, as a man full of grace. 
So when God looks at that on the earth, think about it. The first order of creation was God literally impoverishing himself to give responsibility to another. But he's not diminished by what he gave. The whole intent is that his, his image would be multiplied representatively through thousands of sons all over the earth. Yeah? So every time I give now, you know what? It is such a joy. I say to myself, I'm a spirit being. I don't work out the budget and the maths and the rands and the cents. Right? Don't pull out the calculator. I just give because it's the right thing to do. It's like paying your TV license. Remember that advert? Pay your TV license. It's the right thing to do. Remember that advert? So tell them, we just give. It's the right thing to do. Okay. I don't know how we got on to finance. Finance is not part of our, our topic here. But I just want to illustrate the point, right? So listen carefully. Let me read a text. And I'm going to close with this. Oh, unfortunately, I won't finish this. And I literally won't finish it. I'm going to go on to something else next week. You have to study this on your own. I want to make just key points to you. Key points, okay? So Barnabas gives. He sells his whole property. Remember? And he can willingly divest with the full proceeds, proceeds of the sale of the property. And he brings the money to the apostles' feet. His idea is, feet suggests movement, momentum. His idea is, I want to give momentum, pro, uh, uh, acceleration to the apostolic purposes of God in, in Acts in that time. He had no problem doing that. You know why? In his heart, he was a humble man. Was a, he had the heart of a servant. So listen carefully. Why is grace so attracted to humility? Because God is a God full of grace. The core of whom, at the center of his being, is humble, knows how to divest, to invest. To divest of himself, to invest, committing responsibility to another. You see, God doesn't just make man and say, represent me. God says, I'll make you, but I'll put in you my very nature so you can represent me. Right? So for me, it's the height of a humble being. Height of humility was that expression within God. Okay? Now, in Philippians 2, on page 15, humility demands servanthood. And this I really want you to understand. And in the next 20 minutes as we close, I'm going to take my time to explain. Read the text with me. From verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, he being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Verse 5 says, have this attitude. Humility is an attitude. Right? Now I'm going to link humility with the whole idea of servanthood. It's very important you understand this. The word form is morph or morphe. And it literally means shape, like morph, shape, but figuratively it alludes to nature. So whenever you read now the word form in this text, you will perceive it as the nature of God, okay? The nature of God. 
The word appearance is the Greek schema. We get the English word scheme or outward format from this. It's the word fashion translated in the King James and being found in the fashion of a man, being found in the appearance of a man. A figure, and here's the thing, it alludes to external condition or outward appearance. External condition or outward appearance. So read verse 6 again with that knowledge. Watch. The attitude, verse 5, must be in us, which was in Christ Jesus. Then it says, what attitude? Then Paul explains the attitude. He says, although he existed in the form of God. Everyone say the form of God. Verse 7, he emptied himself and taking on the form of a bondservant. Everyone say the form of a servant. Now the two phrases are linked. The form of God and the form of a, of a bondservant. The amazing thing about this word form, morphe, it alludes to the quality of life internally as an abiding disposition. You can change your schema, but you can't change your form. Listen, schema is outward appearance, how you appear externally. But form denotes internal constitution, who you are essentially in terms of nature. So, watch. It says, just go back to verse 6. Um, verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to, to hold to be cross. Yes, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father says, Son, you go to the earth. But your going means divesting yourself of your godness, of your deity, all your, your God qualities here in this realm, and taking on the scheme of human, outward appearance of a human, you're going to have to divest yourself to do that, Son. The Son said, no problem. Father says, you go. I'll send the Spirit as your empowerment. Right? Father, Son, Spirit having a dialogue. Now watch. It says of the Son, when that discussion came up in the Godhead, the Son did not think equality with the Godhead a thing to be held on for dear life. He says, no problem. I will, what? I will lower myself. I'll leave the status of God with all the attendant privileges and powers we have here. The, it will say the form of God. It says, though he was in the form of God, the morphe of God, he took on the form, the forme of a servant. In other words, the form didn't change. The form of the servant is the form of God. In deity, there's an eternal servanthood. In God, there's a humility that is servanthood, that's an abiding, enduring disposition. Right? Please, you've got to catch this by revelation. It's not like he took on the form of a servant, therefore became humble. The form of God became the form of a servant. So it tells me in the form of God, there's an abiding servanthood within deity. Right? It's not like he had to, to, to go to some great metamorphosis, and, and transformations. Yes, he did. He took on the, he didn't take on the form of man. He took on the schema, the appearance, the outward visage. How he will appear? He will appear as flesh. So the, the, 
the schema changed, but the form remained consistent. So the form of God is the form of a servant eternally locked up within deity. That for me is mind-blowing. Whenever you talk to him tonight, say to him, even remind him, Father, I thank you. Even before there was an earth, before you created the first man, within your entire construct as deity, your form was always servanthood. You're disposed humbly, even in your godness. The son, who was the delegated, entrusted emissary of the God, it sent to the earth to represent you all. He came and he did not, listen carefully, he did not hold to his qualitative position with God. It says he did not count it a thing to be crossed or to be held on to. You know, some of us are holding on to things that make us in the eyes of men. We can't relinquish those things because if we relinquish those things, people think less of us. God says, even though I'm God, I have no problems. The son says, I have no problems leaving that, that domain to take on what by all accounts would be a far lesser state of existence in the schema of man, but the form in me remains consistent that was eternally in the Godhead. Okay? I'll tell you that, but don't change your form. Don't change your form. No wonder God is attracted to humility. You know why? Think of it like this. Yeah, His grace. God is spirit. All God is spirit. And He's full of grace. But in spirit, the eternal deity is an eternal humility. Is an eternal servanthood. When He sees that disposition within men, do you know what? He discovers in men something that is so attractive to him because it's most like him, right? You know, when you know who you are, you have no problems doing anything. You can put on a towel like Jesus did and wash all the feet of your disciples. You can adopt the most humblest position. You know why? Is that realm you came from. God, Father, Son, Spirit, in Spirit, that was the order of the day. To serve. Some of us don't want to serve another because we think we're too high. Some of us are high and lifted up. <laughs> That's only for God. I love uh, Mark's exhortation this morning. Abraham was exalted, Father, but no problems bowing before representations of divinity in his world. You know what I like about Abraham, too? When Lot was taken captive, he, he risked everything to rescue Lot. The brother that left him couldn't see his exalted state as father. He had no problems risking prophetic destiny, risking life and limb to save a brother. What does it say? Be humble one towards another. You know, if, if Lot was some of our nephews and he left us and we were the Abrahams, <laughs> we would say, well, should Loma caught him? He's in Iran, Iraq somewhere, <laughs> in some prison cell. Good for him. He should not have left me. <laughs> Didn't see what I represented. Huh? Good for him. That's not humility. That's why Abraham is a friend of God. Abraham says, I will be humble in reference to another, even the other that doesn't see my worth or value. We only want to be humble to those that regard us. Eh? But he has lot, no regard for Abraham. But Abraham still demonstrates, I will, 
I will use all my resources at my disposal to ensure your welfare. Okay, now that for me is a critical expression of the humble disposition. Amen. So can you see why God is attracted to humility? There's an eternal please. You know, if you get this revelation, brethren, your proud days are over. Even before we start talking about pride. (laughs) If you say, I'm his son, I have spirit like he is spirit. But he has eternal servanthood and humility in him. That disposition is also within me. I have no problems serving another. No problems. I don't grasp onto reputation. The Bible in King James says he, did, he made himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. Right? Some of us are too worried about our reputation. You must go to Nazareth. That's where Jesus lived for 30, 30 years. Not so? Born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth. Jesus, the lowly, how did it say? The lowly Nazarene. Yeah? You know, Nazareth had a very bad reputation. And Daniel said, can any good thing come from that place? <laughs> That's where Jesus lived. He lived in a culture that killed his reputation. He had nothing to live up to when he came out of there for 30 years. Eh? Some of you need to die, and you need to die successfully. Hmm? You know, I love this. The chapter that James talks about here, um, it's a chapter on brokenness as an expression of humility. I want to encourage you, remain broken before the Lord. Remain broken before the Lord. Just have a broken and a contrite spirit. You'll be amazed at how the Lord will use you and, and lead you. Just in closing, I want to go through um, the last page. Pastor Thamo taught this, what I've explained to you, he taught this in one of the schools of ministry. Just for the sake of the recording, I'll reference it in case some of the listeners want to... Um, to access it, it's the March 2010, March 2010 School of Ministry on Pastor Thamo's website, thamonadi.com. You will find a whole teaching, three sessions he did on servanthood. It was the first time I heard in my life that in deity, there's an eternal humility. In deity, there's an eternal servanthood. Okay? And please listen, if you have the time, listen to those three sessions. It's on the website. Now, the challenge. God honors the humble. Let me just say this. If you are humble, I want to read these scriptures as a witness to you. Psalm 138 verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, He regards the lowly. But the haughty He knows from afar off. The NLT, same verse says, Though the Lord is great, He cares for the humble. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Who wants God to honor you? God honors humility in men. He really does. He cares for the humble of, of heart. Okay? Zephaniah 2.3 uh, says, Seek the Lord, all you who are humble of the earth. You who have carried out His ordinances, seek righteousness, Seek humility, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Tell your neighbor, seek humility. This verse tells me it must be a stated objective. I'm going to seek it with all of my heart. How can I be more humble before the Lord? Please remember this, the abiding thought that I want you to leave with this morning. 
grace attends the humble, but divine opposition attends the proud. Why does grace attends the humble? Why is grace attracted to the humble? Because God is attracted to anything like himself in the earth. So if he in his disposition eternally is humble servanthood, right? No problems divesting of himself to commit to another the responsibility of representing himself in the creative order. And to do that, he will endow the man with the essence of his being, giving forth, knowing he is not diminished by what he has given, but what he has given is meant to exponentialize in the hearts of men corporately so that the glory of the Lord covers the earth like waters cover the sea. Then I want to encourage you, brethren, that grace will always be attracted to you when in your heart, in your spirit, you have that disposition of servanthood. I don't live unto myself. I live to serve the interest of another. I will support even vision of another. I will seek the welfare of my brother. I will walk in humility before God internally and before everyone. And there's the promise of a greater quantum and quality of grace that will start to attend you. But if you remain full of yourself, please know this. You can be in the presence of grace, but grace will not, will not hit home to you. God demands servanthood. Amen? So, tell you never practice servanthood. Right? Help where you can. Seek to serve. Seek to enrich. Seek to facilitate. Seek to make things easier. Okay? If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus said, learn to be the servant of all. It's amazing God's economy. Eh? He says, in my eyes, the greatest among you are the ones who have learned the disposition of servanthood from their humble hearts. That is why grace attends the humble man and the humble woman. Amen. So great grace and peace be to you as you, as you seek out humility with all of your heart. Next week we will talk about just one session and then we'll go on to expressions of pride. Expressions, how, how, how is obedience a manifest expression of humility? says he became humble by becoming obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death. Next week I'm going to talk about courageous obedience unto death. Where you obey to the point of even if I die, I die. But I will obey my father. When it's said of me at the end of my life, God doesn't say to me, well done, the good and faithful son. He will say, well done. My good and faithful servant. Servanthood. Humility in the heart is what's going to stand before God. So you serve my purposes. You facilitated my will in the earth. Well done. Amen. May the Lord richly bless you.